the precious privilege that we have continues as we have opportunity to look into the Word of God. I'd certainly like to take a personal privilege for a moment and express my appreciation for Brother Harold as well as Brother Jeff, Brother Lester, as they so beautifully and adequately filled in last Lord's Day, teaching the classes, delivering the lessons. I know that that which was put forth was the pure, truthful Word of God, and as such, all were benefited by being able to hear and to come to an appreciation of those things that they shared. I'm thankful for the prayers that you shared on our behalf for the meeting, but we're happy to be back today, back to our Pippin family. And as we look to a lesson entitled, For Our Iniquities, at least a portion of that which we will consider will be drawn from that text read just a few moments ago, drawn from the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. In the long ago, over seven and a half centuries prior to the birth of our Savior, that beautiful prophecy was uttered in which a dramatic and vivid picture was given about what the Savior, the Son of God, would endure, not for himself, not to gain public notoriety, not to gain perspective, and not certainly to gain that which would find its way into the lives and hearts of pleasing men, but rather for our iniquities, for the fact that they were sinners and they needed a means by which they could be reconciled to God, for our iniquities. I wonder what things the Savior would endure for our iniquities. What things would be heaped upon his body, upon his mind, upon his shoulders because of you and because of me? That'll be the subject of our lesson this morning. What did he undergo for our iniquities? As we proceed to look at a lesson by that title, we'll begin with these introductory thoughts. Reflecting in our mind for a moment, that the world has been blessed with many activities and phenomena, events that have been earth-shaking in a very poetic way. Things that have been great by human ascendancy and by human perspective. But I would submit that all pale into comparison to what happened outside Jerusalem about 20 centuries ago now. Looking back to the events surrounding the death of our Savior, we come to the single most momentous and meaning-filled event in all of human history. What took place that day with the death of a certain individual is sufficiently great that we would often do well to reflect upon it. And in fact, built into the very imagery of the worship of the church is a set of emblems that call to our mind the reflection and recollection of what happened that day. This morning for our lesson, let us put a few details also to that as we start our events on Thursday evening and trace them over the next 12 hours or so and see what our Savior endured for my iniquities and for yours. As we do that, I've begun the lesson by hoping that as we consider that this morning, we will never allow the events to become rather meaningless to us or pass over them as though they were trivial but always have a stern appreciation for the magnitude of what he bore for you and for me. As I begin this lesson then by looking at that again, would you turn with me to Thursday evening? I have pulled together the synopsis and events, all four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, add emphases and details to it. I've tried to compile them and thus list in chronological order what seemed to have taken place in that last 12 hours of the life of our Savior. And in so doing, let us look and try to gain an appreciation again for what Jesus endured on that occasion. Ever since the days of Exodus chapter 12, God had given commandment to, to the Jews that they were to enjoy and participate in that observance called the Passover. 
In fact, as Jesus neared the end of his life, it was the Passover season of the year, and he had given commandment to John and to Peter to go on that day and make ready so that he and his disciples, those closest ones to him, could observe that Passover and thus remain in harmony with Jewish tradition for 1,500 years prior. As Peter and John had made ready, it was an upper room there in Jerusalem, and about the sundown hour of the day, Jesus came together with his disciples, the closest disciples he had, those apostles, and they participated and observed the Passover. Perhaps in consideration, we will next look at a slide and then return to this one in a moment. I want to issue a bit of a qualification as I reach the point in the lesson like this one. I'm going to use some pictures along the way, and I wish to state up front, this is some artist's rendition of the scene of that keeping of the Passover and the celebration that took place. It is not to say that's exactly what it looked like or what they themselves exactly looked like. So please bear with me on that part. The setting, though, in terms of that which took place, the upper room appearing, appearance from the window does seem to be appropriate and adequate. But with that comment made, these twelve and Jesus gathered together on that evening since it was the Hebrew character that it must take place at the very beginning of the day, it would have been between 6 and 9 p.m. on Thursday evening, Jesus gathered with these apostles. They partook of that Passover meal, and as such, they themselves shared a very meaningful and powerful event. It only happened once a year, and as they partook of it, it symbolized their unity with the God of heaven through the character of that Old Testament keeping of one of those three major feasts and festivals. As they participated in that, the Old Testament had reminded us that some of the things involved were various meats and various liquids that they would be taking. There was something, however, exceedingly unusual about this particular celebration. Jesus, at some one point in it, and shortly thereafter, took unleavened bread and fruit of the vine and stated something very unusual. He stated a memorial character, that in fact they were to keep this in remembrance of his body and his blood until he come again. That would not have been the typical part of the way that was observed, and hence this was different. I wonder what the apostles must have thought. Also, on the occasion of the celebration of this Passover, Jesus directly identified who would betray him. Recall that in John's Gospel account, the one to whom Jesus handed the sop when dipped was the one that would betray him, and the Lord handed it to Judas Iscariot. Immediately after having received that sop, John tells us in his Gospel account, Judas went out. That left only Jesus behind with the other eleven. Jesus spoke of some marvelous and powerful teachings over that period of time he was with them. Recall that John chapters 14, 15, and 16 all took place while Jesus communed with those 11 apostles. That was that very text in which he said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you into myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Three verses later, again, with Judas no longer there, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. He spoke about the Holy Spirit frequently in that set of texts. When he reached John chapter 16, verse 13, he said, How be it when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, 
He will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but that which he has seen, that shall he reveal unto you, and that which he shall speak. Is Jesus revealed to them the comforter, the one that would provide them with comfort given what would take place the next day. They were of a sense of appreciating perhaps the fullness and greatness of what they later would see as, as what had taken place. As these scenes took place though that evening, might we notice that that certainly was only the beginning. For also can we not appreciate the fact that after concluding the events of the Passover, now it would have been probably about 9 p.m. that Thursday night, Jesus and the eleven proceeded to sing a song, Matthew 26, 30, and proceeded to walk to a destination. Jesus, you see, leading the procession, if you will, to a place called the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives was a mount located just east of the city of Jerusalem. One would pass through the Kidron Valley and over the Kidron Brook in order to reach it. Jesus had often resorted to this place, John 18, verse 2, and as he resorted there, it likely seems to have been a place of tranquility and serenity, a place where he could appreciate a powerful communion with the very God, his Father in heaven. As they proceeded on this place, though, it was not a silent walk. Jesus spoke along the way, and he even testified to them of great momentous events that would happen that very night. In fact, to those disciples, those apostles walking with him, he said, All of you will flee and leave me tonight. To Peter, that bold and aggressive leader, he even said, Tonight you'll deny me three times. Peter and the others said, That's an impossibility. It'll never be that way. We will stand by you even if it demands our life. However, they continued to walk, making their way to a destination that our Savior had in mind. They came to a garden called the Garden of Gethsemane. It was situated, it would seem, near the summit of the Mount of Olives. And this was again that place that Jesus had often resorted to. The apostles knew well where this place was. And as Jesus came to this place, this Garden of Gethsemane, maybe a picture would bring into our mind something that looks like that. It was a place where olive trees were very, pre pre very present because this place was known for its olive growing. And that was what was appreciated in the garden called Gethsemane. That's in fact what the word means. Perhaps there was an olive press nearby, but at any rate, we can appreciate the very clear presence of olives all around. And isn't it still interesting how the olive symbolizes peace? Maybe our Savior, when his mind was so anxious and troubled, sought a place of peace a place of understanding the serenity and capability that God could provide. With the understanding of this Mount of Olives and where the Savior had arrived, we might note some other things. For when Jesus came, He left the majority of the apostles at a place that seemingly was near its entrance. He took Peter, James, and John a little bit further. And ultimately, having arrived at a certain place, He besought them, Watch and pray. He went about a stone's throw further and entered into prayer. Our Savior prayed so fervently and earnestly that Luke tells us that sweat was on his forehead, as it were, drops of blood. The text tells us he was very heavy, very sorrowful. And even Luke reminds us that the word agony is used to describe the situation and perspective in which our Savior found himself. 
By this time, we were approaching the midnight hour, Thursday night. As Jesus prayed, he returned to those three and found them asleep. He asked them, could you not remain awake with me an hour? Could you not bear with me? He even urged Peter, rise and pray. For indeed, isn't it true that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak? The Savior again returned and prayed. And each of the times Matthew tells us he prayed, Nevertheless, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Matthew 26, 39 and Matthew 26, 42. On the third time, Jesus returned, found them asleep again. They had been unable to bear with him and provide him at least that degree of association and strength. But just as surely as Jesus had returned a third time, there were others beginning to join them. There was a band of officers and soldiers coming, led by none other than Judas Iscariot. And as they came, we can appreciate that in that coming, perhaps a picture like this could have been in order. Jesus was an individual who had caused no ruckus, he had not caused a tumult or any other particular matter that was in disagreement to the harmony of the land, and yet they came with lanterns and torches and swords and weapons. Judas lightly kissed Jesus, that betrayal kiss that we so powerfully remember. The Lord had a question for Judas, and as the scenes of the events underwent, we recall that there they proceeded to also arrest our Savior. The power and things observed in that garden proceeded to now fold underneath very quickly. The events were so filled with emotion and so filled with the fervor and energy of the time that they proceeded in very rapid fashion to lead to our Savior's ultimate demise. It would certainly be fair to say that on this occasion when they had a short discussion, Remember that two of those who came, when they asked, were looking for Jesus, and the Lord told them who he was, they went backward and fell to the earth in obeisance to him. They seemed not to be of a disposition willing to take this man, but their orders had been to do the very same. They arrested our Savior and bound him as a common criminal to lead him off to the other reaches of the events of that night. Upon binding our Savior, they first led him away. to the house of a man named Annas. As they led Jesus to Annas, he was not the high priest at this time. He, in fact, was the father-in-law of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas. However, Annas had been the former high priest. Amazingly enough, he apparently still maintained a degree of jurisdiction or at least a degree of respect among the Jews of the day. Jesus was led to this man and he was initially questioned and by this time, we would have been in the wee early morning hours of Friday morning, perhaps 1, 1 a.m. or so. As Jesus was questioned by Annas and the others that had gathered on that occasion, these preliminary questions, of course, held no ultimate force of jurisdiction or law. But nonetheless, Jesus was questioned. And rather quickly, he was also led to the house or the chamber, if you will, of Caiaphas. By this point again, we have reached the early hours of Friday. As Jesus was led to the chamber of Caiaphas, a procession or degree of questioning was also brought to bear upon the Savior. Many things were discussed. Many ideas were put forth. Perhaps most interestingly, 
to that group of scribes and elders and other officers that were therein gathered. We remember that they sought witness against Jesus. They called in individuals and pleaded for some to testify against him. They were looking for something whereby they could accuse him legitimately and have him put to death. However, one problem was that the witness of the things that were spoken by the witnesses were not in agreement. They were not the same kind of statement, and hence they had disagreeing witnesses. That could produce no legitimate cause of causing any difficulty to Jesus. Finally, the high priest directly asked him a question. Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus, in fact, to that very idea responded. And his answer was all the ammunition that was, in fact, needed. Jesus said, I am. He, in the very presence in that wee early morning hours of Friday, testified to them he was the Christ, the Son of God, that he was the very one the prophets had foretold. He was the very one for whom they of the Jewish organization looked. As those proceedings took place, we should appreciate that as Jesus made that statement, Peter and John were present. Not much emphasis is laid upon John in the accounts, but we do know he was present for he ushered Peter in. This was the very place where the very entrance and the things Jesus was at a distance, Peter denied him. Due to the character of the maid and the question that she asked and the others who thought sure they had tied Peter with the very one who was on trial at the distance, Peter denied ever even knowing him. It was on that occasion that Jesus, by his great providential way, looked at a distance to Peter, and then the cock crew. Peter's head hung, and he knew and went out wept bitterly, the text tells us in Matthew 26, 75. On this occasion, might we remember that these Jews who were there in presence, listening and present at the trial, they were not merely innocent bystanders. Recall that their Savior was woefully mistreated on this occasion. How often do you and I appreciate the lawfulness of a judge and those who are the court officials mistreating in public the one on trial? In our land, that would be an open trial in and of itself. Jesus, however, might we remember, was spit on. They hit him with their fists and also blindfolded him, slapped him in the face, and then said, Prophesy who hit you. They reviled, they railed upon our Savior. In the early morning hours of that day, we now hear this again was not the ultimate public and official of a trial. These were two pre orderly pre-trials, if you will. However, after Jesus had affirmed that he was a son of God, the high priest raised his thoughts and said, We have enough. He is guilty of blasphemy. All in presence agreed. They thus held up that this man Jesus was guilty of blasphemy and was worthy therefore of death. They had what they were seeking. They were thus in position to proceed onward to bring this man to death. We need to see how the rest of the, those early morning hours would proceed. That brings us, if you will, to, to the next set of slides and to the next set of events. Shortly before dawn, they needed a more official recognition and meeting and so the Sanhedrin court was called together. Now when we say shortly before dawn, those are the words that the scriptures use for us. This would probably have been around 5 to 6 a.m. Those gentlemen decided to get up early that day because they were called for what they thought was an important matter, a man openly guilty of blasphemy. 
they needed to give their rendering as to the correctness of that charge. They hastily did so. And because of that, they too deemed him worthy of death. Here was a man now, being accused and rightly justified in their eyes of being put to death. However, there was a problem. That problem was in fact this one. As Jesus stood before that group, though they themselves had found him guilty of death, they, were, they had been stripped of that power by the Roman authorities. Jews could not put someone to death. The Romans had taken that power from them, and only Rome, only the emissaries and jurisdiction of Rome could execute a man. And so with that said, Jesus had to be taken somewhere else. We appreciate that, in fact, they led him away now to the Roman tribunal. A man named Pilate was the overseer at this period in Roman history. He himself was the ruler in that city of Jerusalem, and as they led our Savior, Jesus the Christ, before him, it is to be noted that they accused him before Pilate of different crimes from which they had accused him earlier that morning. Earlier it was blasphemy, and it was for that charge they were willing to put him to death, but before Pilate, they said, this man is a, has been subverting the nation, and furthermore acclaims himself as a rival to Caesar. They knew well, thus, that that would have a higher likelihood of causing a stir in the mind of this Roman official. But don't we yet see one more time the mockery and fakery of this whole proceeding? To accuse a man on one occasion of one thing and then before the actual official of another? As Pilate listened to the case, might we appreciate that in his listening to it, he at first found no fault in Jesus. And he told those who were hearing of the same, I find no fault in this man. In fact, he affirmed, you are accusing him of things that relate to your law. You go and handle it. This is no Roman matter. However, that crowd was so incessant. They were so overcome with fervor and with emotion and with energy, they would not let the matter die. As Pilate heard, in fact, that this man had had dealings in the area of Galilee, that was Herod's jurisdiction. Interestingly enough, Herod at that time was in Jerusalem, and so Pilate sent Jesus to be heard by Herod. Let Herod deal with it. When Herod was such that he saw Jesus or recognized the Lord coming, Herod had desired to hear Jesus, but it was not for any good reason. Herod had heard that Jesus could work miracles, and he wanted to see him do something before him. Maybe raise someone from the dead, heal someone's sickness, but he wanted to see. He wanted to be entertained. Jesus wasn't about to entertain him. It's too serious a matter for that. So when Herod appreciated that nothing like that would take place, he and his men proceeded to very woefully mistreat again our Savior. They stripped his clothes from him and put on a gorgeous robe, put a reed into his hand, made out as though he were a king when really he was. As they treated Jesus in that rather humiliating and spiteful way, those proceedings again were early in the morning, Friday morning. They didn't seem to last too long, for Herod would not deal with the matter, but took the clothes back off him, put his own clothes back on him, and sent him back to Pilate. When Jesus came back before Pilate, we might still note that Jesus at first was interviewed privately by Pilate, according to John's account. He and Pilate entered into a very prominent discussion. 
The discussion involved things like, my kingdom is not of this world, John 18, 36. For if it were, my servants would fight. And on that occasion, Pilate asked, what is truth? And the Lord said that I am the truth. Jesus was all the meaning that man ever needed to know. And yet Pilate would ultimately wash his hands of the matter. When Pilate went back out to speak to the crowd, after having interviewed him in private, he said, I find no fault in this man. He is not worthy of death. However, the crowd again was unwilling to let that reside. Amazingly enough, we begin to see so powerfully and quickly that the events were such that Pilate had an idea. It was a custom at each Passover once a year to release one prisoner. And so Pilate made this offer, since I found no fault in him, why don't we release him as it's a custom each year anyway, and all the matter can then appease and enter into quietness. The mob, though, when they listened, they knew very well about a notable prisoner who was there, a man named Barabbas, who himself was both a murderer and a robber, as the text tells us. And they cried out, give us Barabbas. And then Pilate said, well, what are we to do with the Lord? What about this Jesus? They said, crucify him, crucify him. We're now at about 7 to 8 o'clock Friday morning. Our Savior had been through a sleepless night, questioned by those of Annas and those of Caiaphas, stood before the Sanhedrin, slapped in the face. All the while, though, there is still so much to come. As that crowd, you see, called for his execution, as the Jews stirred the crowd and demanded that he be put to death, we now appreciate that Pilate had another decision to be made. In John 19, verse 1, now to this man whom he has found no fault in, he declares that he be scourged. He declares that he be scourged, S-C-O-U-R-G-E-D. To be scourged perhaps looks something like this. An individual had his hands tied, perhaps in an upright fashion like this, perhaps laid over a post that might look somewhat like a hitching post, where your back would be openly upward and exposed, and then an individual would beat and beat and beat upon you. As you will look closely, if you can look what's in the hand of the soldier doing the beating, typically in the days of the Roman Empire, it was a whip whose ends were threaded into various arrays, whether it be of leather, whether it be of some other particular substance. At the ends of those d disagreements, or at the end of those regions of the whip, were hard substances, perhaps rocks, perhaps pieces of metal, perhaps even pieces of sharp objects. And, though, and so when the person's body was hit with it, it would dig into the flesh, and it wouldn't take many stripes at all before it would be a virtual bloodbath. The muscles finally would virtually be severed. Great and excruciating pain and almost convulsions would result after one were beaten some number of times with this. Under the Jewish law of the Old Testament, 39 stripes was all a man was allotted to have. Since Romans did this beating, there was no limit. We do not know how many times our Savior was beaten. We do not know how many times it would have been before he was almost to the point of death, even at this point. The violence and cruelty was certainly notable indeed. As Jesus was beaten in this fashion, in this way, it leads us to see that once that thrashing was over, Pilate has another decision to make. Now the Lord has been scourged, even though Pilate considered him innocent. 
Might it be noted that even Pilate's wife advised him, in a dream I have seen that you'd better have nothing to do with this innocent man. Pilate at that point took a basin and washed his, wa washed his hands of the matter in water. And he said to the Jews, you deal with it and you take care of it. His blood be on you and not on me. The Jews were happy to hear that verdict for with Pilate saying that, they now could do with Jesus as they pleased. With that sentence rendered, the soldiers proceeded to mistreat him even further. They stripped again his clothes from him and this time put a scarlet purple robe on him. Again, a robe that would be characteristic of a king. They put a reed in his hand as though that were his scepter. And since any king needs a crown, they made one for him. They made a crown, but not of gold, not of silver, not even of iron. It was a crown of thorns. As they planted that crown of thorns and shoved it down on our Savior's head, his back was already openly bleeding, and no doubt his front side as well, as that whip wrapped around his body and tore the flesh open, blood now flowing also from his head and his brow. Here was a man who himself was at the very pangs of seeing what humanity in its, in its inhumanity could bring and do. As Jesus was punished in his fashions and his ways, the soldiers spat on him. They again hid him and reviled him and insulted him. And now with Pilate's verdict, the Jews again could do with him what they saw fit. So they put, their, they put his clothes back on him and proceeded to lead him away. Where did they take him? What were they intending to do? Pilate's turning Jesus over to them was his death sentence because that's what the Jews wanted. They'd cried, crucify him. So they put on Jesus a wooden cross, forced him to carry it. That was another element of the humiliation of that day and time. A man had to carry as much as he could the very instrument that he'd be nailed to or at least affixed to. Jesus, along with Simon, as Cyrenian, was compelled to bear that cross. And so along he trudged. Again, after a sleepless night, having lost so much blood, his front and back and head traumatized, and it seemed still wearing the crown, off he trudged to that, old, to that old hill of the skull, that place of the skull called Golgotha. When he arrived at that place, we now have come to about 9 a.m. Friday morning. Perhaps the sun now well up, certainly by far, in the heat of the day beginning to rise. They arrive at this place, and the execution of not one but three is now needing to be done. As we arrive at the scene of this, there are two thieves with our Savior. One will be crucified on either side of him. Perhaps we can notice also that when they arrive, Jesus carrying this cross, it would seem that the weakness of his body perhaps compels Simon to assist. But when it's all said and done, they arrive at a place stretch out his hands and start driving a wedge into it. The Son of God, here in a position where a Roman soldier takes this iron railroad ties, what you and I might well call it, and pound it into his wrist. One on each wrist and then one with his legs put together into that old wooden cross. The Son of God allowing himself to be treated like this. As they pound these into his hands, he had no medicine to deaden the pain. He had nothing whereby he himself would be mentally unconscious of it. He felt every bit of it. As those spikes went through the nerves and the wrists, and as they went through the nerves and the marrow of the legs, can you not feel the convulsions in his body and the pain as he endured all of that for you and me? 
as they pounded these things into our Savior's body. Then, of course, they would lift that old cross upright and drop it into a hole. As, it, as they did all of that, it's to be noted that our Savior, though he could have, he did not resist. He had earlier in Gethsemane said, I could call 12 legions of angels and put a stop to this any minute. But he said, it's the will of God. I came from heaven not to do mine own will, but thine be done. John 6, verse 38. As they lifted our Savior up and dropped that cross in that hole, we remember that by this point, Jesus was, a, was in a very difficult position indeed. How could one breathe easily in such a case? Crucifixion is quite likely the most horrible means of death the human family has ever invented. With that person nailed to that cross, your hands are outstretched like this and there's nothing you can do about it. The muscles, after a little while, will become aching and burdensome and extraordinarily heavy. The Lord's back, remember, was already open and the muscles no doubt exposed. And every time you'd move up and down on that cross, it had to be painful. What's more, the only way to breathe was to push your legs against that nail and lift your body up. But each breath was excruciating. Finally, you'd almost smother to death because you couldn't lift yourself up anymore. Many times, individuals would make it for several days, but our Lord didn't. Could it be the anxiousness and anxiety that had hung over his head for 12 hours? Six hours, and our Lord was dead. Six hours from 9 a.m., he died at 3 in the afternoon. While the Lord was on that cross, he uttered seven majestic statements. To that crowd, as they passed by and wagged their heads at him, pointed their fingers at him, and cried, Come down from the cross if you can. Even one of the thieves said, save yourself and us. But the other one said, we deserve what we got. He didn't. Those seven statements our Savior made, Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Second statement that he made, in fact, to John, behold thy mother. Also to Mary, he said, behold thy son. The fourth statement that he uttered on the scene of that cross, the powerful imagery in which he himself affirmed, the character of what was taking place. He himself stated the fullness and greatness of all of it. He cried, it is finished in John 19.34. The work that he had been sent to do was now completed. When our Savior endured all of these things, those seven statements themselves are such a wealth of information. Seeing the mentality of the Son of God, what others had done to him and how he returned the same thing to them, but so differently. They had given to him hate, and he returned love. They'd given to him the most reviling of treatment, and yet he beseeched God for their forgiveness. Having said all of that, our Savior again, the very last thing he stated, it is finished. He didn't mean the crucifixion. What he meant was, is that work whereby the human family could be saved had been finished. All the elements needed for the plan of salvation, the forgiveness of human sin were now in place. No wonder 50 days later Peter would stand up and preach it in its power and fullness because of what happened then. They and we as well can have forgiveness of our sins. What happened in regard to that Son of God? Three hours of darkness came across the land at 12 o'clock. Though it was in the middle of the daytime, it was pure black dark from 12 until 3. The veil in the temple was rent. It was an overwhelming, vivid, and dramatic scene. At 3 p.m., our Savior died. 
Notice that that's only about 15 hours from when the proceedings of the Passover had started the previous night. When the 3 o'clock hour came around, or shortly thereafter, we might remember the Sabbath was the next day, for it was now Friday and the Sabbath was Saturday. It was necessary for these individuals, both Jesus and the two thieves, to be dead, for it wasn't proper to have these corpses on the crosses over the course of the Sabbath. And so the soldier came to break their legs, to hasten the dead, so that they could quickly get them buried. They came to Jesus. The Roman soldier didn't break his legs, for he was already dead. As we look at that word break in the Greek text, it really means to crush. Likely, if you and I could envision it, imagine a sledgehammer pounded against the person's legs with that cross in the back. The leg wasn't just broken in two pieces, it was openly crushed. Because once you couldn't push yourself up against that nail anymore, you couldn't live much longer. Our Savior's already dead. And yet that Roman soldier, to ensure that death, thrust that spear upward. Remember, he was standing on the ground, the Lord on the cross. It would seem from the description that spear not only penetrated his rib cage, but penetrated his heart. For forthwith came forth blood and water, John 19.34. Our Lord's heart was burst. Burst by the case of that spear piercing it. Jesus' life had been given. Everything was now finished. With the things that we can see finishing our lesson this morning, the Son of God endured a lot. Why did He do it? Why allow Himself to be treated that way? What would you and I have done if we had had the power to stop it? Wouldn't we have and wouldn't we have caused every one of them to be stricken with leprosy or perhaps died on the spot? The Lord didn't do any of it. He endured it all. And why? Even when Peter drew the sword and cut off the right ear of Malchus, Jesus said, Peter, put the sword up, for my Father's will must be done. He did it all for the text that was read earlier in Isaiah 53. By his stripes, we are healed. He was wounded for our transgressions. Who's mine? Who's yours? May we never forget the scene at Calvary. May we never forget the scene at Golgotha, but appreciate it as we're about to here in a moment what that bread and that fruit of the vine represents. It represents the love of God for a people that didn't deserve it. The love of God for people who need in humility and obedience to respond. Having seen what Jesus did for you, are you a Christian today? Don't you want to serve Him? Don't you want to love Him to be a member of His devoted family? Don't you want to take the blessings that he has to offer and live faithfully till death and one day be with him forevermore? When the time came, eight days later, that he showed the nail prints to Thomas. Remember how Thomas responded? My Lord and my God. If Thomas had any doubt before that, he didn't anymore. May we have no doubt the gospel accounts summarize in our mind that this was 12 excruciating, agonizing hours. But can you and I not have great blessing because of it? An eternity, not only greatness in life here, but life evermore, standing by His side, the one who died for us. If you need to become a Christian today, don't wait any longer. It would be a frightful thing to leave this life and stand before the God of heaven in judgment and have Him say, Look what my Son did for you. And you rejected it? You neglected it? Do you think you'll be merciful? Do you think that he will extend any hope of mercy? I don't think so. And the text affirms that he will not. If you need to respond openly to the call of invitation, 
whether we can assist you in your confession and baptism or in the rededication and renewal of your life, we'd be honored to do either one. If we can help you, would you not let it be known while together we stand and while we sing?